Ride faster, go further, and take your performance to the next level with the Wahoo System Training App, where sports science meets stoke. Behind every ride is a workout designed by world-class coaches. System puts you at the heart of the biggest races in the world with workouts from the Pro Ride Series. And when you need time to recover, watch one of the cyclist-focused documentaries in the Inspiration Series. System also allows you to train alongside Wahoo athletes in the app's A Week With series. Plus, you can go on location to ride the world's most iconic routes. If you have a goal, Wahoo System has a plan crafted by sports science to get you there. So head to the App Store or Play Store to download the Wahoo System app and begin your 14-day free trial. To find the app, simply type W-A-H-O-O space S-Y-S-T-M in the App Store or on the web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Bella News Podcast. Today we are talking Milan San Remo and Mate Mohorch. Awesome performance up the hills, down the hills, and to the finish in San Remo. I'm your host, Ben Delaney, out here in sunny San Diego, talking today with Jim Cotton at home in sunny England. How are you, Jim? I'm good, thanks, Ben. It's yeah, as you say, it's actually a sunny day in England, which is, you know, very rare at this time of year. So yeah, life is good. All things to to celebrate. Now, one thing I love about bike racing is how it surprises us, right? You know, you and I write about this sport for a living, day in, day out. Ostensibly, know what we're talking about, but what we say ahead of time and what actually happens are are not necessarily one and the same. And and this past weekend, I think we were delightfully surprised uh, with Matej Mohorch's solo victory. So on this pod, we're going to break down how exactly he did that, looking at uh, the Daredevil tactics. Uh, thanks to Zach, Coach Zach Nair, we've got his power numbers and the numbers from Matthew Vanderpool, who uh, came back to an awesome third place, his first race back after back injury. So comparing their power numbers on the critical sections of the race. And then of course, talking about the, uh, the dropper post that Mohorch used to, to great effect. Um, and the history of that particular piece of gear in road racing. So let's, let's take it from the top. Now, one, one thing that uh, we were debating leading in was, do you need, do you really need to watch the entire Milan San Remo? It's the longest monument on the calendar, nearly 300 kilometers. You and Hoodie faced off on this. What was your, take to watch every kilometer or to tune in at the end yeah so i i uh, me and andrew hood uh, riffed on this and my take mine is the uh, the millennials take as as a relatively young man uh i went for the short attention span kind of final 50 to 60k so about an hour and a half tune in just when it's the three cappy which are like the little warm-up hills you get the vibe you kind of get the feel for the race you have about 20 minutes to just like, you know, nurse your first Italian beer or uh, San Pellegrino according to taste. And then the Chapressa's here and, uh, you know, it's all starting to kick off. And then from there on, it's the best best sort of hour of bike racing of the year, I believe. Whereas uh, Hoodie, you know, a bit more of a traditionalist, he likes to sit there for the full six and a half hours and watch every, watch every kilometer click by ostensibly watch every night. He keep be napping for good portions of this and you wouldn't miss a thing. So like, for example, today we're just talking about basically when it picks up coming into the Chapresa because there was an early break, an all day break. Uh, but 
completely inconsequential. So it really got down to business coming into the Chipresa. So the way the race shakes out, there are two key climbs at the end. The Chipresa with, what, about 25 kilometers to go? Then followed by the Poggio. And neither are, you know, massive mountains. The Chipresa is 5.6 kilometers. Uh, the Poggio is just like three, you know, under four kilometers at, you know, not too steep. You know, it's like under 4% average. But again, like these guys have been racing for six hours coming into it. And they're, uh, the Poggio in particular is a pretty tactical climb and descent, right? So looking at the numbers, I think you and I could have kept up for the first five and a half hours of the race if we were sitting in the pack. Just, uh, you know, Mohorich was averaged 198 watts. Uh, Vanderpool did 195. So broken down into watts per kilo, that's 2.8. So that's not nothing, but that's not world uh, you know world class best numbers guys were sitting in the bunch they had a tailwind for for much of the time the no hope break was established and they're just kind of kind of rolling along now obviously this all adds up and the cumulative effect is huge you know like if you're jumping out of an airplane the last 5 feet to the ground isn't isn't what's going to to hurt you but it's the the preceding 30,000 feet you've dropped it'll take the sting so 2.8 watts per kilo for for both these guys not that much. You coming into the Depressa, UAE team Emirates for Tale Pugacar, uh and Yumbo Visma for Wout Van Art came to the front. And there we saw the, the riders to get over the Depressa needed to be doing you know about five point seven watts per kilo for that ten minute climb. So we saw Mahorch was you know averaging something like four over four hundred watts for ten minutes. Um Vanderpool just a bit more. So that's that. Now we're getting into some serious bike racing. We saw the group went from basically full strength down to. I mean, how many people were over the top of the Chipresa? Yeah. So before the race, there was a lot of hype and anticipation about Pogachar, you know, lighting things up on the Chipresa, which is typically the is, is well, is a very early place to try and attack in San Remo is typically seen as like the beginning of the end, but not the end. And uh this year he his whole team like went to the front and totally lit it up, like turned this sort of five hour zone two ride or whatever these guys were doing into a proper proper throwdown. And it UAE Emirates really, yeah, really cranked the pace and the group came down to maybe about 30, 30 riders, whereas normally it could be perhaps double that and yeah that's where the pace really hits like really lit up i love watching davide formulo's face when he's given it at the front you know he's got his sunglasses off and it's, a lot of these riders are i don't want to say expressionless but it's hard to tell what's going on when they've got you know massive sunglasses on and their game face on yeah formulo's got his glasses on his helmet and his his mouth is moving around and his eyebrows are moving around and it looks like he's having it a hard time, but then he would—he just sat there doing 400 watts for quite some time. Yeah, he's one of these one of these rare riders that has no shame in showing that he's suffering, and I, I think there should be more of it. Oh, I love it! I love the earnest effort. But uh, yeah, as you say, it wasn't quite fast enough nor steep enough to really break things apart there. So then you've got a bit of a lull coming into the Poggio, and uh, you know that was more like a, a six-minute climb for these guys, and we saw. You know, Mohorich was doing his average was 434 watts, so like 6.1 watts per kilo. That's again serious bike racing there, uh, over the top. 
And there again, we saw Pogachar attack and attack and attack. And Zach Nair was calling some of his attacks, cat five attacks, and that he would just go straight from the front where everybody's expecting it. Everybody's watching him. And uh, people were, or people being the, you know, the, the very best in the world of, of Wout uh, and Vanderpool were pretty quickly on his wheel there. Yeah, the interesting thing about the Poggio is, like you say, Ben, although it's only a 10 or six six minute effort, whatever, it's uh that they're in the big ring and I've heard I've heard riders saying that they actually have to break around the corners because they're you know they're going that fast like probably faster than I might go downhill uh, <laughs> if it's a if it's a sketchy road and yeah we did we, we we did see a spill in one of those last uphill corners it's a couple guys overcooked the corner I couldn't see which riders went down but uh, yeah somewhere in this group yeah Pogacar attacked individual like as a kind of unique attack, maybe four or five times, and he counted maybe twice. And it all looked like this is where, you know, Pogacar was finally going to have this attack after it was discussed, after it was, everybody thought that he'd do it 20k earlier on the Chipressa. And every time Van Aert and Van der Poel were kind of countering, and this is where Mohoric's kind of masterclass ride sort of started, started to click into action because the whole way up this, um, the Poggio, he was just hiding kind of towards, you know, in maybe like 10th, 15th wheel and didn't, didn't really show himself at all, which is exactly what you want to do because he, yeah, sat in the wheels on a climb that fast will save significant amount of energy. But like, like Zach pointed out in the power file, that's still six point something watts per kilo, which is something that I can do for about yeah, 10 seconds on a good day. <laughs> the speed going up the the climb reminded me in some ways of a cyclocross race. Maybe it was just seeing Wout in action, but like Pogacar, Pogacar would attack and Wout would come up to him, but he wouldn't sprint all the way up to Tade's wheel. He'd get close and then he would wait until Tade would break into the corner and then he would let his momentum carry him right up there and you know, take as much speed through the corner as possible. And that looked to me like you know, Wout in a, in a cross race. So that was interesting tactical bit. And like I say, yeah, Mohorich was in the shot, but the announcers weren't calling his name. Yeah. So, uh, interestingly what you say about Wout kind of looking like he's at a cross race. He, he did say after the race and he finished, um, I can't remember where somewhere kind of in the top six that he, he spent too much energy just sort of marking Pogachar and that, he perhaps could have taken his own chances a bit more, but also just by by marking this five six attacks by Pogacar that he just completely ruined himself for the finish. And dropping back to Mahoric, so yeah, all, all the way up the Poggio, he's way out of the frame and nobody's really thinking about him. And before the race, he'd been in the kind of ten or twelve riders you might think could win, but nobody really thought he was. And by the time they got to the top of the Poggio, this group of, I think it was four, had gone clear with Pogacar, Van Aert, Matthew van der Poel and, and one more. And it looked like looked like Mahoric was, was done and it was going to be down to four. But he bridged he bridged over over the uh, over the top of the Poggio to this to this group. And um that's where his victory really sort of started and set in train this absolutely crazy sense that will go down in San Remo history books. And actually Hoodie has written a really good uh, like analysis 
breaking down the descent into five parts, which is on the website now and is definitely worth checking out. Yeah, absolutely. And and the the power form of horror certainly backs up what you're talking about of like that key point when there's four clear and he bridges across on the flat. So he's already been doing well over six watts a kilo for the, the entire Poggio. And then when it flattens out, I would assume a lot of racers are trying to catch their breath thinking, okay, we're done now. But like if those who let off the gas there were, were done for the day and no longer at the front. So he, he ramped it up yet again, was doing, you know, well over 500 Watts, 7.2 Watts a kilo for 90 seconds after, you know, going full gas up that climb that got him up to the group of four and he didn't just latch on. He just went straight through at that point. Yeah, so Mohoric, uh, he was saying a lot after the race how much he had been preparing for this and um, how it had been his sort of big target all year. And he'd been studying the route. He'd been speaking to his team and his mechanics about what to do to his bike and things like this, which we'll come back to. And obviously he had this kind of master plan. And part of that was to to hit this descent at the front where he can use this he's notorious for being kind of lunatic when the race goes downhill and he's he's pulled a lot of moves going downhill and he's he was sort of one of the pioneers of the super tuck uh which has now been banned so now the super tuck's been banned he just finds other crazy things to do going downhill and once he'd hit the front he uh i mean this descent off the poggio is a heart and mouth moment anyway but as soon as he hit the front he kind of came around the the left-hander at the top and he kind of overcooked it and went into the gutter and it looked like he was going to go straight into a into a wall as he looked around to see who was chasing went into the gutter and then just bunny hopped back into the road at about 80k an hour and at, at this point two or three riders mentioned afterwards that when they saw Mohoric kind of going full full crazy down the hill they they let the gap open because they know what he can do downhill and they weren't confident in following him. And that's, that's where he made his gap. Yeah. Huge risk. And it's not exactly like there's uh, safety netting or padding or hay bales. There's just shallow stone walls and drop offs and yeah, big, big consequences. So another key thing he did at the top was to drop the dropper post, which was a, uh, you know, something he had, mentioned he was going to had some go fast gear at the start of the day and a few of us were scratching our heads as to okay what what does that mean like is it tires or is it, you know nope it's a, a fox transfer sl dropper post which you know can drop the saddle down by about 50 mil or 70 mil those are the two options that look like he had the the 50 mil on there dropper posts you know have certainly been used and beloved by mountain bikers for many a year and we've seen a few of these dropper posts pop up on some gravel bikes uh, but seeing them on road bikes is pretty much unheard of i mean there are examples that we can point to in the past um vincenzo Nibli, another daredevil of a descender um, had one on his bike uh, going back to the 2016 tour de france um, that was an FSA post, and that just had 20 mils of drop, so pretty pretty small difference. Um, and even uh, Ivan Basso used one prior to that. So they ha- they have been used, but 
hardly at all. Um, when we saw the Super Tuck band um, back in the last April, there was some speculation that, hey, are we going to see more of these dropper posts now? Not for the reason that mountain bike users, mountain bikers use them to you know, lower the center of gravity or, or to be able to maneuver the bike more easily uh, between your legs going down you know, technical descents, but just simply to lower the body for aerodynamic reasons, the way riders are doing a super tuck. So, you know, media types like you and I jabbered about that for a while, and we saw exactly nobody use them in the World Tour Peloton for that reason. So on this descent, we saw both those things come into play <laughs> in spectacular fashion that he was using the post one to lower the center of gravity, which he said afterwards, like, oh yeah, it was definitely an advantage in lowering the center of gravity. Like think like a, a MotoGP rider or something, just bring the body down, makes it easier to move the body left and right and around the corners. And on the few straightaways, um, having a reduced frontal profile means you know more speed for the the same effort or when you're tucked more speed because there's just less of you um, in the wind so that was that was a clear advantage i'm curious as to how much time he did spend practicing because i'm i'm totally sold on the idea of reducing arrow being a benefit clearly like that's just physics right that's just math um but for these world tour racers who have had their saddle height fixed to the millimeter for years and years and hundreds of kilometers, suddenly changing that geometry when they're at their limit, flying down a technical descent, that would probably, that would feel, I think, feel weird to most riders. And that even if it's a theoretical benefit of lowering the center of gravity, just the change in, and the, 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 your contact touch points, I think, would throw most people off. So that to say, Jim, if you or I just put a driver post on, I don't think we would suddenly be going 90K down a tactical descent. No, I, I certainly won't be trying it. And um, Mohoric did say after that he had practiced in training quite significantly. But as, um, as Hoodie points out in his, uh, in his story, you can practice in training, you know, on your own, with like no, no distractions around you but when you're doing it you know full gas 90k an hour or whatever being chased by the Tour de France champion and Wout van Aert and Mathieu van der Poel after six hours is a totally different matter and although although uh the dropper post was the big the big factor in how he got away there were a few riders pointing to that he got very close to the race motos on the way uh, on the way down the kind of the straight sections, which obviously creates a huge amount of drag and effectively helped kind of a huge huge reduction in drag. Well, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. Uh, helped him pull away from from the bunch and um, and then you know he go, going on from that onto Hoodie's next point. Um, he, he's kind of hit this like terminal velocity and uh, rounds another left-hand bend. And again, like he did before, kind of almost lost control, overcooked this bend and almost again went into into a wall at about, about 3K to go. And yeah, there was some serious kind of heart and mouth moments there. But it really looked like he was sprinting out of every, every corner. So it'd be interesting if Zach 
picked up on that in his file. Yeah, absolutely was. And it was like looking at the the file, it's like a, you know, stair step type thing where just he was, you know, sprinting at like, you know, 900 plus thousand plus watts out of every corner. So again, this is after six hours, after a 10 minute full gas effort up the Poggio, bridging over the top. And then he's sprinting out of every corner like it's the the finish line of the race. Averaging well over 33 miles an hour on that descent. And if you watched it, you realize like that, that that's not just a straight downhill, um, just let it fly. <laughs> so I don't, you know, I don't know what his top speed was, but it was a sprint repeat workout out of every corner. And the guys behind are doing the same thing. Um, you know, Vanderpool's doing higher numbers, but I think they were breaking more. Well, I know they were breaking more into each corner. Yeah, and I guess if they don't have that dropper post and they're less aero, then they they got to put out the same power to sort of keep keep similar pace as well, right? And um, yeah, so Mahorich, once he'd uh, kind of preserved his life going down the Poggio narrowly, kind of hit hit the Via Roma, which is the the long kind of straight in, well, about fifteen hundred meters straight um, into the finish, and he had a couple of seconds gap, and it looked like it was all done, like, you know, it was his. And this would be a huge breakout victory for him. He's won Tour de France stages and he, he's come fifth or sixth in Liège before and he's, he's you know, one of the Peloton's top riders, but winning a monument is something different. It looked like it was all nailed on and then something happened to his chain on the flat road. It looked like it kind of bumped off off his jockey wheels or something I couldn't really see. Like, yeah, it looked like it came, yeah, it came like a, that left-hander just inside 1K to go. Yeah, and it looked, I, I didn't see it very well, but it looked a bit like the chain might have come off, not at the front cog, but like at the back and underneath all the kind of jockey wheels or something. And everyone was like, oh my, I can't believe this is going to happen. You know, he's within a kilometre of winning this race and it's all going to go wrong. And he somehow kind of pedaled, pedaled the chain. Pedaled it back, back on, on, yeah. Yeah, which takes a lot of very cool head after that long and with uh, the biggest win of your life in sight. And uh, yeah, he just kind of four minute pursuit or whatever down, down the Via Roma and held off the chasers for quite spectacular victory yeah it looked like he was shifting big ring to small ring through some of those corners to keep up a high cadence um and i'm wondering if he did that uh just sort of out of habit coming around that left hander where like he or just maybe his hand rattled around and and somehow bumped his his front shifter to take it from the big ring to the small ring because he was stood up to 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 ex, you know to again sprint out of the corner and all of a sudden there was no resistance and the other chain was flapping around but that was great presence of mind to be able to make that save and yeah like I said that was basically a a little per, pursuit effort he was doing over four hundred watts for that last you know two point two k that's five point seven watts per kilo averaging thirty five miles an hour again like at the end of a six hour race after he's gone full gas up the Depresso, full gas up the Pollo full gas plus some down the Poggio. Like, you know, he was averaging averaging 300 watts down the Poggio where por- portions of that he's not pedaling at all. So just huge efforts all the way around. Vanderpool, bigger guy, bigger numbers, uh, cleaned up the what was left of the bunch sprint, if you want to call it that, uh, coming in at third. You know, he was peaked at uh, 13.58 watts for the big fella. Um 
but just goes to show that the bike races aren't won by the numbers on a power meter, but by who crosses the line first. So, you know, Vanderpool, arguably the stronger rider, the better sprint. Mohorch played his cards uh, perfectly and with the great abandon, much to the delight and and uh, shock of fans watching at home. That's the, that's the thing for a guy like Mohorch. I mean, he's got massive power and he's got a great like all-day engine, but to win a race like that where he he wouldn't really win a sprint, he needs to do something different. And he he is like quite an intelligent guy and he obviously knew he'd he'd seen his opportunity at this race and he'd been like we said earlier, he'd been planning it for kind of months. And his victory really was this kind of unique combination of kind of forward thinking tech, uh, big power and on the descent and this kind of one of a one of a peloton skill at going downhill very fast and the there was a lot of interest after the race about about his use of the dropper post and in a way now that he's done it it seems like such an obvious thing and it seems strange that it's not done more often from your tech perspective ben do you see a reason why is there a is there any compatibility things or like why might it not have been done much before? Any, any ideas? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a few reasons. Um, this is all, you know, speculative on my part for sure. Um, weight compatibility, uh, and, you know, a lack of, uh, regular use, I think would be my top three reasons. Um, bike racers are, weight weenies uh, because watts per kilo is is a critical thing you know watching uh Bogachar at strada bianca for instance you know i saw him like when he attacked at 50k or so to go he chucked his water bottle off and it's not like that was a a mountaintop finish but there was some elevation gains and he was just super aware of how much weight he and his bicycle and gear uh, are bringing to the equation and just in that water bottle straight away. We also saw him uh, at Torino riding a rim brake bike just to save a few grams over a disc brake equipped bike. So this weight is is top of mind for these riders. And uh, the post like, starts at about you know 327 grams for a dropper post, um, which is it's as light as dropper posts go. Um, a carbon post would be, you know, in the neighborhood of like 200 grams or so. So under 30 gram difference, that's, you know, roughly a third of a pound. It's not huge weight, but it, but it all adds up. And again, these are guys who, you know, some of these guys haven't had dessert in seven years trying to shave that last, you know, tiny bit of a kilo off their, their body weight. Um, so yeah, weight is, is a factor. The feel of the, the dropper post is another thing. You know, this, this is one Thing more discussed like in gravel where having a long carbon seat post can add uh, a bit of flex and comfort and and if you put on a dropper post that's fixed uh, you're walking away from those comfort benefits of a carbon post not as much of a deal on a road bike but still a deal and again like Milan San Remo you're in the saddle for nearly seven hours um, having a bit of you know engineered flex built into the bike that you know, these bike manufacturers have worked years and years on perfecting, chucking that out the the window for a, a pretty stiff metal post. 
not ideal, uh, maybe not a huge deal, but not ideal. Um, and then some of them have like a tiny bit of play in them. Um, not that you would notice most of the time, but, um, you know, it's, it's primary design is to go up and down, right. Compared to a carbon seat post that can be designed for, you know, stiffness, comfort, um, the ride characteristics. So, so that's, that's a reason they haven't been used. Um, and then the, uh, uh, the primary one I think is, you know, I was touching on earlier that these guys have spent and women have spent years of their lives in a, in a very specific position um, and changing that for just a few moments, albeit critical moments might just feel odd, you know, um, even if it is better in terms of what the, the mathematics say, like if it feels off, it feels off. Right. So, um, and then, you know, tradition can be, another but now that we've seen it used to um to great effect i think we'll see it pop up more because you know pro racers are are impressionable human beings just like the rest of us you know and when something uh, is is used for a win like that that certainly makes a connection and where again where i think it the biggest benefit lies is in the aerodynamics um and that the you know the super tuck is faster and you know you could say well now that it's banned all riders are back to the same place they were of if everybody has to sit on top of their saddle no one has an advantage but um you know the uci has you know again i think you posted the story that they've you know you know reaffirmed their position from years ago that yes dropper posts are legal in racing have at it so for riders like mhorge if you can have a bike that's you know right at the UCI weight limit and get an aero benefit from time to time, why not? So I think we'll, I think we'll see more of that. I don't think you know the next race the entire peloton will line up with dropper posts on, but I don't think it will be another you know five years before we see a notable rider deploy this technology. And I know the the you know the manufacturers are also kind of eager to. To get involved, the you know Bahrain Victorious team, sponsored by FSA, he was he Mahorch was using a Fox uh, dropper post, and the lever was something that the team had built. And I've been staring at these photos that you were able to to get from the race when you were covering the race this weekend. Thanks for those photos, Jim. Um, the lever is like a custom th- circular thing that he had clamped on his handlebar. Uh, often the lever is kind of like a big, I don't want to say clunky, but a, a notable big lever that sort of compromises your hand position. You know, this looks like a uh, a big metal ring um, that would you know minimize some of the the ergonomic issues. And I know you know FSA was uh, speaking or, or emailing with uh, Matteo Salazzo there at FSA, and they've said they've been working with him since January on this. Um, technology and they went with Fox because that's the best one out there right now. Um, but they're you know, eager to continue working on solutions and, and bring uh, their own products to market. So that's, that's something I'll be curious to see as well. Well, the interesting thing is, I guess, is uh, whether it gets, well, I imagine if it does get used more, it will be on very selective races and very selective stages where there is like a crucial descent within the final, but whether it does get used or not, 
Mahorich is going to be the guy that did the thing at Milan San Remo, <laughs> which I think people will remember. It will be one of the kind of, in 20 years' time, it will be in the five Milan San Remo's you need to watch sort of thing. And yeah, Mahorich got there first. So if in 10 years, you know, 33-year-old Tade Pogacar riding with a, a drop post, then it's because of his mate, Mate. So yeah. And it's if if you didn't see the race, it, it's well worth watching the last twenty minutes because it's it's incredible. It's it's very memorable and definitely worth worth watching. Absolutely, absolutely. And well, thank you for reliving that with me, Mister Cotton. We'll look forward to to many more in the future. And listeners, I thank you once again for joining us on the Villain News Podcast. Have a great week and we will speak to you next time from Belgium where the classics are ramping up. So long, folks. Yeah.